Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the second part of our Comrade Cast doubleheader. And in this part, we are going to be doing a thorough update on the Russo Ukraine war. We're going to be doing a first off kind of small tactical update on how the Ukrainian counteroffensive is going. And in that regard, we are finally starting to get some good news coming out of that. However, this is going to be a good news, bad news type of episode because unfortunately, I am seeing a lot of bad signs, not necessarily for Ukraine, but signs that Russia is going to more than be able to continue this war for the foreseeable future and even be able to make some marginal gains, not necessarily in Ukraine, but in other places on the geopolitical stage, despite the extraordinary amount of carnage and destruction they've caused in this war. That despite it all, at least domestically, Vladimir Putin might actually walk away looking better than I think a lot of people have been willing to give him credit for up until this point. But let's start with the good news, and we can talk about the recent counteroffensive progress in Ukraine. As stated before, we're going to be talking mostly about the Ukrainian counteroffensive, in which we finally have some good news. The good news is coming mostly out of the Robotnye front. This has been a very slow grind, but as you can see here, we have a little bit of an, of an intrusion going into the Russian pocket here. Let's just see if we have anything interesting here. Just artillery strikes in the area. We have Russian forces conducting, conducting offensive operations 13 hours ago. We have Ukrainian forces claiming success in the southern direction and some more fighting and shelling along the front lines so this is the biggest breakthrough we've seen so far and unfortunately again it has been happening much slower than a lot of people would have anticipated although we're finally starting to see some of the fruits of the ukrainians labors so here we have a map from the institute from the study of war this is going to give us a much better and much cleaner look into what's going on, particularly in the Robotnia area. Like I said, this is the biggest breakthrough we are seeing so far. And the big, big point to take away here is that this has shown the first initial breakthrough through those preliminary Russian defenses. So as you guys may be able to see, there are these various red triangles all across the map. These represent various Russian defenses, static defenses. And as you can see, the Ukrainians have breached the first line. And this has taken them quite some time. As uh, we have discussed on the show before, these are areas that are mined more than any other place on the planet right now. It is going to take generations and generations of future uh, people to remove the mines from this area. But again, the big thing here is that we're through the first line of defense and now we're officially making contact with the second line of defense here and in my opinion people have been saying that most of the defenses are concentrated around the first line i'm not as sold on that usually when it comes to these kind of defenses your second line is actually the one that has the most defenses your first line is there mainly to disrupt and break up attacking formations. And then the second line is really to soak up those broken up attacking formations. 
And then your third line is there in case shit, shit is really hitting the fan and they're breaking through and you need to find a fallback point. Nonetheless, though, it shows that the Ukrainians are making progress as gradual as it has been. The one thing that Ukraine has been doing throughout this war and continues to do is to hit any and all Russian logistical centers. They want to make it as difficult as possible for the Russian army to move supplies around Ukrainian territory. And in that goal, they have been very successful. And this is part of what is allowing them to finally start seeing some progress. And of course, this is what really allowed them to make the massive progress in Kyrgyzstan that we saw last year was them cutting off the supplies to the Russian forces on that side of the Dnieper. And in response to this, we've heard all kinds of reports. We've heard reports that Russians are sending in their best reserves into the area right now, or that Russia has already sent their reserves or that everything is collapsing. I, we don't know. I don't know. We won't know until we see some actual movement, but we do have some very good looking preliminary signs. I do. I have seen, however, some more pro-Russian leaning people in this war say that this is a trap that is happening right now, that the Russians are trying to draw the Ukrainians into this little bulge here that you can see, and then attack them on all three sides. I am not as convinced that is what's happening, or if that could happen, I would be much more convinced of a tactic like that if the Ukrainians had broken through in a much more sudden and spectacular fashion. However, what we're seeing are much slower and gradual gains, which indicates that while Ukraine is making these gains, they have had more than enough time to dig in and protect the gains that they have. I don't think the Russians are going to have a lot of success in retaking this claimed Ukrainian territory if they're trying to attack them on three sides. I don't think it's going to work out as well as they were hoping to, just because given how this offensive has progressed, the Ukrainians have had more than enough time to defend and dig in around the territory that they've taken. Once we start hearing about some breakthroughs through the second line, then that is when I am going to be thinking we are really seeing possibilities of a serious collapse in the Russian defenses. That being said, right now, this is the best news, I think, to come out of the counteroffensive so far, that the first line is down and we're fighting on the second line. So that ends most of the good news we have around the counteroffensive. And now I want to talk about some of the bad news. Well, on the tactical front, there isn't bad news for Ukraine. And even necessarily a lot of what we're talking about so much isn't bad news for Ukraine. However, it is bad news for people who oppose, who oppose Putin and want him removed from power in Russia. Because I think he has right now at least weathered enough of the storm where removing him is very difficult. And he is going to continue to make steps to make removing him even more difficult. I think Russia is actually getting some concessions in the long war, if you want to call it, and the economic war, which are going to help him, even if he ends up losing a lot of the territory that he's gained in Ukraine, even if he ends up by and large losing the war. Some of the things that he's doing are actually going to help him win, at least for his position. So here is one of the things that they are doing right now. 
This is from Yahoo News. Again, this is not my favorite news source. And they are quoting the Ukrainian Pravda, obviously a very pro-Ukrainian news source. So again, like I said, I, I always like to make sure you guys know where most of these are coming from. Uh, but what they are reporting is essentially is that the UN is ta in talks with Russia to restart the grain deal, which will basically allow Ukrainian grain to be exported out of Odessa without being harassed or destroyed by Russian ships. They are in talks right now to restart this deal, but in exchange, Russia wants all economic sanctions against them rescinded because their argument is essentially, you guys restrict our exports. You guys are going to restrict what we're doing. We're going to restrict what Ukraine is doing um, under your same logic. And if you want us to stop, then you have to stop what everybody's doing to us. Thankfully, if you read the article, you can tell that it's not really serious. Nothing serious is happening because realistically, the UN can't do anything. The UN does not decide economic policy for the countries that it represents. It does not decide what sanctions go on or what sanctions do not. Those are still left into the purview of the governments themselves. But of course, it would be a win for Russia if they could um, say, hey, we got this deal negotiated from the UN to get grain exported, uh, but big bad NATO is uh, refusing to abide by it and lift their sanctions and they're killing all these people by preventing this grain from getting out and so on and so forth. It would definitely be a point of leverage that they would use to try and either get this uh, deal restarted or make the West look like the bad guys here instead of Russia. So, well, thankfully, this is a lot less scary than the, than the headline would have you believe. That being said, though, even they aren't close to making a deal. I don't think it's going to happen. But, and even if it did, this wouldn't, of course, end any and all sanctions on Russia. Those are still with the various governments of the various countries themselves, but it would be a pretty big PR win for Russia. Moving on in terms of trade, this was a very interesting article that I knew I had to share with you guys. This is from Business Insider India, and this is a analysis of Russian trade out of its three major international ports. So those three major ports are, just so you guys are aware geographically, we have St. Petersburg, and then down in the south here, the second major port is Rostov-on-Don, and then the last one which is examined is the far eastern port of Vladivostok. Effectively, what this article is showing is, let's move on to the really big part here, the really interesting part here, which is uh, the graph of Russian trade volumes over the past, how long is this? Okay, this is since the war began, effectively. Since the war began, uh, this is Russian trade volumes out of those various ports. So what we see is mainly what you would expect, which is a huge uptick in uh, Vladivostok and also to a less degree, but also an uptick in Rostov-on-Don exports because both of those ports face 
Asian countries, Af African countries. These are the countries that Russia is now looking to do trade with since Western trade is now effectively blocked for them. So you would expect to see large upticks of cargo going out of those ports because Russians are looking to new markets to sell their stuff. However, the most interesting part here is you can see the huge collapse of goods going out of St. Petersburg pretty much for the entirety of the war until just recently. Let's see if I can, it's hard to see. Just a touch, zoom in here, just a touch. You can see right there out of St. Petersburg, there's a huge uptick just in the last month or so of goods going out of that port to the point where it's rivaling the same amount of goods going out of St. Petersburg as during the pre-war times. And that's like a huge boon for Russia. Of course, we are in the sort of last summer months for St. Petersburg as doing trade out of that port during the winter is a little bit more difficult. But that being said, this is still very unusual given the geopolitical circumstances. Why is there so much trade happening out of St. Petersburg all of a sudden? And it seems to me that maybe there are some people in the West, some countries in the West that aren't exactly taking their sanctions that seriously. Or there are countries in the West, which even if they still are taking their sanctions seriously, they are still willing to do business with Russia for a couple of reasons. One is that Russia still has lots of goods that people need outside of energy. While energy products make up about 60% of their exports, of course, that other 40% is other things like metals, metals like aluminum, steel, copper. They also export a lot of parts, vehicle parts, machine parts, that kind of stuff. And then agricultural foodstuffs are also a big part of what they export. And none of these goods are sanctioned, so they are not affected by, of course, the same rules. And as we can see, the Russian ruble continues to slide. However, and this is one of the things, and if you read the article, it doesn't, it's shocked. It's like, why is Russia still able to export despite the low ruble? It's well, that helps them. You fucking idiots. You're supposed to be business insider. And here this greasy communist is understanding economic principles better than you are. The reason why the low ruble helps Russian exports is because other countries now can effectively buy Russian goods at sale prices and Russia, they don't have to move their prices at all. They can still sell their goods on a world market for wholesale prices and still make retail profits, if that makes any sense. So a lot of countries are still willing to do business with Russia to buy these other goods. And not only that, there are countries further afield in places such as Africa and Southeast Asia that now have access to Russian goods that didn't before. And the reason they didn't have access to those goods before is because Russia was selling them to countries much closer to them. They had no reason to look out or reach out to these other countries and potentially do business with them because it just really wasn't worth the effort. But now, that uh, everything has changed and Russian trade is now looking eastward very, very rapidly, all of a sudden these countries that never had access to Russian goods are suddenly having access to it at a time when the ruble is low, which will allow them to effectively get those uh, goods on the cheap.
So yeah, these are some very worrying signs that on the strategic level, Russia is, I wouldn't say they're winning the trade war, but they are certainly not being damaged anywhere near as much as they probably should be given the amount of sanctions and other types of economic implements that have been used against them. And then moving over to the last point before we will wrap this up, we have Russia and Kim Jong-un meeting in Vladivostok for trade talks and that sort of thing. And right now, because of the international situation, Russia and North Korea are looking at each other like we have a lot of things that we can exchange. We're being both forced into this international pariah status. North Korea has whack tons of ammunition just laying around. And all that this country does practically is produce ammunition. And we're at a war, so we need all these cheap bullets. We need this cheap labor from North Korea. And of course, North Korea can get access to advanced technology and military equipment and other types of things from Russia. So they are growing closer together right now in a way that hasn't happened since Russia used to be the USSR. We have Putin and Kim Jong-un talking right now, of course, to increase their trade status and their economic ties. One of the things that I think is going to be the big, big win for Putin coming out of this war is if he's able to stay in power, effectively, he will have purged any and all opposition that could touch him or come anywhere close to touching him. And of course, the whole uh, aspect of a war happening, Vladimir Putin slowly has the ability to tighten the screws on its, on his own domestic apparatus and slowly be able to grant himself more and more and more power as the war goes on to the point where rather than needing any kind of, kind of democratic legislation or democratic institutions as fig leaf-esque as they might be in Russia currently, he can effectively just gather any and all power within his own office and the war gives him the perfect excuse to do that. And not only that, the war gives him the perfect excuse to get rid of any and all enemies. He's obviously gotten rid of any and all anti-war critics. And now I guess he's, he's moving on to the pro-war critics as we have seen, of course, Prigozhin getting taken out. We've seen a lot of really pro-Russian, excuse me, pro-Wagner military bloggers. Some of them have been arrested, questioned, mysteriously disappeared. Maybe Vladimir Putin is doing to the sort of pro-Russia, pro-imperialist side of the political wing, they, what he did to the anti-Russia sort of side of the political wing, which is that he is weakening them. He's purging their most effective members. He is outright assassinating them in some cases and basically making their lives as difficult as possible. So even if Vladimir Putin loses Ukraine, if he's able to hold on to power somehow, he still will effectively won from his own position because he will have consolidated so much of the power apparatus in Russia into his own hands that he will be effectively unstoppable. He will be the dictator in name and power, and he will be able to do whatever he wants. I don't think this is particularly revolutionary thinking. 
throughout history, leaders have used wars and crises to consolidate their own power, to give themselves more capabilities in times of crisis. And what better crisis to do that than an ongoing war? Anyway, I just wanted to vocalize some of the things I've been worrying about. Like I said, things are definitely devolving into more of a strategic war of attrition. And this is the kind of war that Russia has fought. It has been wanting to fight if it has to fight. And it's particularly good at. And my biggest worry going into the future for Ukraine is political concerns that if we get a Republican president in 2024, are they going to pull the rug out from underneath the Ukrainians and cut off their funding? And not just in America, they have those political concerns all across the Western world, as there are parties which are more in favor of funding the war in Ukraine or more in favor of funding uh, the Ukrainian armed forces. And there are parties in various European countries which are against it. And one of Putin's greatest strengths and greatest assets is his ability to be able to wait things out. He's proven that he can wait things out before. The guy can't wait forever. He's still a mortal human being, so he's got to make a move eventually. But he is a patient man who can wait for his opportunity to strike. What, one of the things people often forget about Putin is that he is not a man from the military ranks of the Russian armed forces, right? He's not a military man. He is a KGB man. He's a spy man. He's a internal security apparatus man. He's the kind of man to never let a good crisis go to waste and who is always scheming and plotting and using the tools available to get himself ahead. So I think it's hardly surprising a man coming from that sort of background would be keen on consolidating as much power in his own personal lap as he can. Anyway, with that, I think we're going to bring things to a close here. We've wrapped up our Comrade Cast catch up for the last two weeks. And with that, I don't think I have anything more that I can say. Plus, of course, we are running out of time anyway. So I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been the Comrade. Signing off for now. Until next time, you guys take care.